Thank you so much, uh, praise team, for, uh, for that great preparation to our, our look into God's word to think about his church. I was telling the guys on the weekend that, uh, could you please invite me back next year? You don't have to ask me to speak or anything. Could I just sing and worship with you guys? And now having gone through some little volleyball on Saturday afternoon, I can add that, you know. I'd just come back and play volleyball and sing with you guys. Just let me come back. So it was a great time together. It was great uh, to get to know Greg a little bit. I know you're still getting to know Greg, but I think you guys are in for a real treat as he steps in with his family uh, to the role that you've called him to now, and, and especially getting to know Robert. And I, uh, uh, I just wish that every, every man had a passion for discipling men in the congregation. I know we share some things in common. Both of us have been impacted by parachurch ministries, and we've seen the value of connections, and I, and I love being in the PCA, but I just admire his, his understanding of the place of a retreat and, and the place of helping men as they try to lead, sinful though we are, weak though we are, the covenant family as God's designed it. I want to invite you to please turn in your Bible, if you would, to uh, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, the, the letter that you know is uh, focused on God's church. We're going to look into the fourth chapter, beginning with verse 11. We're going to see here the, a picture of the church in action. And we're going to notice a theme, a, a theme. Am I doing this incorrectly? I'm... All right. Where's Greg? He always takes care of me. We're going to notice a theme... I'm going to pull this away a little bit, which is uh, the three themes of purpose. We're going to see in this text the purpose of God for the church. We're going to see the process that he uses to accomplish that purpose. And then we're going to see the parts that he requires to be successful in that process. And it's interesting because he goes through these this purpose, the process, and the parts twice. He does it once as an overview in verses 11 through 14, and then he kind of does a zoom lens and looks at those same three in verses 15 and 16, so we'll do the same. Would you follow with me? I'll be reading the ESV translation. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask now that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your word. For we ask in the name of the word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. At the close of a men's retreat, not unlike the one that we just had here, we were gathered and having a a little bit of a say-so, and a man I'll call Bob stood up and uh, 
struggled to speak through his tears, and he said, I want to confess, brothers, that I've really been struggling with pornography on the internet. I've been married two years. I really thought getting married would take care of it, but it, but it hasn't. And he sat down. Slowly, another man stood up. I'll call him Sam. He said, I too have a major problem with looking at pornography. I know it's wrong. Sat back down. Next, Bill stood up, kept looking at the floor, couldn't bear the shame of looking his brothers in the eye and said, I'm having that same problem too. Then he sat down. And then Brian got up and said, you know, several years ago, even though I was in vocational Christian ministry, my struggles with porn nearly destroyed my marriage and destroyed my ministry, nearly destroyed my ministry. Uh, guys, I'd like to start a group. I'd like to start meeting with you guys uh, t- to study together, to pray together, to be- have each other's back for some loving accountability. And then he ended with this thought that has stayed with me. This is not the kind of battle you can win alone. Well, that's just one battle that men are fighting in my field, sort of men's ministry. I try to help them be better husbands and wives and dads, and it helps everybody. But there are other battles that men today in the church are losing. Let me give you some statistics from Man in the Mirror. For every 10 men in today's church, nine will have kids who leave the church and don't, don't come back as adults, at least not in the first 10 years of uh, leaving the church. Not, so eight will find their jobs unsatisfying. Six pay the monthly minimum on their credit cards, credit card balances. Five in this study have a major problem with pornography. The more current studies are more like 70%. Uh, Four will get divorced, affecting over a million children in our country. Only one has a biblical worldview, which I know you guys have been addressing in, in Sunday school. And all 10 will struggle to balance family and in the workplace. And that's men inside the church. What about men outside the church? Where the condition of men and the failure of men is experienced as social problems. Let me mention just one failure of a man. Uh, the, The epidemic of father absence. In America, there are 36 million children who will put their head on their pillow tonight who have no meaningful relationship with a father in their home. 24 million of those, their father's physically not present. Another 12 million of those, the father has no positive emotional connection with the child. It could be abusive and negative connection, but it's not there at all. So over half of our children in this country have no meaningful relationship with their father. And that breeds all kinds of other problems. 60% of America's rapists grew up in homes without fathers. 72% of adolescent murderers grew up without fathers. Children who demonstrate violent misbehavior are 11 times more likely than other children to have no father in their lives. 33% of all children in America, by the way, are born out of wedlock. And father absence is just one of many struggles that are taking place, social problems in our country, behind which is the failure of a man. It's not a man who set out to fail, but it's a man who did. Leading someone like 
James Dobson to write this, the Western world stands at a great crossroads in its history. It's my opinion that our very survival as a people will depend upon the presence or absence of masculine leadership in millions of homes. I believe with everything within me that husbands hold the keys to the preservation of the family. What's going on here? What's happening in our culture? Well, there are lots of explanations, but let me suggest one way of looking at this. There are 113 million men in America who are 15 years of age or older. Of that 113 million, 69 million make no claim to profess faith in Jesus Christ. But 44 million do make such a profession. Of that 44 million of men professing faith in Christ, 6 million, only 6 million, are engaged in any kind of discipleship process. And in in this study, discipleship was a very loose definition. It was anything that that you do beyond coming to the worship service, they counted as a a discipleship process. Uh, Being a deacon, serving on a committee, coming to Sunday school, being in a home group. Uh, So it was a very broad definition, and only 6 million out of those 44 were engaged in that kind of process. Now, when you look at that 6 million compared to 113 million, that means one man in 18 in America is engaged in a discipleship process that is helping him be a godly man. Why shouldn't we expect our culture to be showing what it's showing? Think for a minute about those numbers. Supposing 18 men, it's baseball season, went out to a baseball park and only one of those 18 had any idea how to play baseball. Well, what would happen? Well, they might be sword fighting with the bats and throwing the balls up in the air or throwing the balls at each other or throwing the bags or jumping on the bags for first, second, third base. Who knows what would happen? There'd be chaos on the field. Why wouldn't it surprise us that there's chaos in our country because only one of 18 men in America is in a discipleship process? So for that reason, I've given myself to the task of helping us as a, as a denomination, as a, as a country, as a church, to focus a little more and see if we can tweak the way we're going about discipleship and be as effective as we can. So let's dig into the text. There's, first, we're going to look at the overview uh, and, and see those three parts of it, and then we're going to do that zoom lens. So the purpose of God... It is actually in verses 13 to 15, if you want to look at your Bible or look at the text. And, and you see four, three words there that really suggest that he's going towards a purpose. And this is, is pretty obvious, but he, Paul starts out with the apostles and the leaders, and, and they're supposed to equip the saints. Okay, But then you see the end that's in sight until, which suggests the end of a process, we attain, which is the second word that suggests we're going towards a goal here, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that, and then it continues on. So it's just clear, and you see this, we don't need to spend a lot of time here, that what's in view is the purpose of God to grow up into Christ the head, the multifaceted way that he describes this process of a spiritually mature disciple of Christ. So that's the, the purpose of God is... is for the church is to make disciples. And then we see the part, the process that is described for us. And there are, there are two sort of uh, 
categories of, of people, uh, uh, participants in this process. There are the leaders, and of course their job is to equip the saints. I know this is sort of a review for all of us. So that the saints, and that's the second category, can do the work of ministry. So again, the, the, the process is, is very clear here, that all the members of the body do the work of the ministry, but the job of the leaders is to equip the saints so that they can do that work of, of the ministry. And, and so that's, again, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry so they could build up the body of Christ. And then the parts, again, just to review that, that's the leaders, and they have a role, and the words used here suggest offices and, and some categories of spiritual gifts. And so they point to the fact that the church makes disciples by functioning as an organization. Uh, we do have elders that are elected. We do have Christ as the head. We have the seating of the elders, the session with the or exercising the authority of Christ, uh, overseeing the preaching of the word, overseeing the administration of the sacraments, overseeing church discipline. That's all a process of, of, of exercising church discipline. The, the, this is a, a neat text because it really does talk about the significance of organization. Uh, and I think personally, we in the PCA do the organizational part of the church really pretty well. Uh, but the church engine of making disciples needs to run not just on the cylinder of church functioning as organization, but also on the church functioning as organism. And that's the other category here, the rest of the body functioning as organism, uh, building each other up. Every believer being connected to the other members in the body to do that. So that's the big picture of what's being said here, but here's the problem. And again, men's ministry is more my specialty. 19 out of 20 Christian men aren't connected. There's a very large statistical study that was done among committed men. It was done largely through people going to men's uh, workshops, men's seminars. And a definition of, uh, of a best friend was laid out before the men, and they were surveyed, and they were asked, do you have this kind of a best friend? And 19 out of 20 of those men said, no, I don't have that kind of best friend. We are facing an epidemic of isolation of at least men and perhaps some women and teens, but I know the field of men, an epidemic of isolation with men, uh, with men being isolated. So why should it surprise us that our men aren't doing real well? I was, uh, have written a, a few things, uh, a book that we're working on now called Got Your Back and, and something called Forging Bonds of Brotherhood. And a couple of guys at one of the churches in Virginia had read that, and I was working with that church to help their men get connected. And I was standing in line uh, at, a, at a beast feast where I was going to talk about this. And one of the guys who read the book says, you know, Gary, you talked about how we need a brother watching our back. But he said, you know, even in the animal kingdom, that same principle that if you're alone, you're vulnerable, holds true. You know, he said if a pride of lions uh, decides that they are hungry for zebra steak, uh, what do they do? Well, they take off after that, that herd until they can break one off from, from the rest of the herd, and then they go in for the kill. And I thought to myself when he said that, I thought, the scripture says Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that is his strategy in the 21st century, in my opinion. Our men are isolated. 
What do we do about that? Well, let's keep going and look at the zoom lens where Paul actually gives us a a little more detail about the process of getting connected. And he does it right at the beginning of verse 15 and 16, restating the same purpose, process, and parts that he has in that first overview section. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ for whom the whole body joined and held together and so forth builds itself up. So we, we get the process there. You know, we've got, we've got the purpose. We'll go in the same order. The purpose is growing up into, uh, in every way, into Christ the head. So Paul is, is saying the same thing that Jesus said about the purpose of the church. And you know Jesus' words. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you even to the close of the age. The word disciple, as you probably know, is mathetes, uh, from which the word mathematics comes. It really is descriptive of a learner, but it's a type of learner in that culture. It's a learner who is patterning his life after his master. It's all about applying what his master is teaching and being like his master. And Jesus' approach to discipleship was that that's done in a context of love, that Jesus, the master, pours out his love for his his disciples, and then his disciples respond to that love. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And by the way, discipleship's not just about what our hands do. It's also about what our hearts love. And as we pursue this goal of discipleship, it's just kind of helpful for us to keep that in mind. Uh, it's, it's a heart-transformed disciple, which is, which is what we're after. Now, uh, and it's so easy to get off track. It's so easy to get off track about making disciples, and it's so e- easy to get off track about forgetting that it's about the heart. In terms of getting off track, I, I think of of Peter Drucker's comment about business. He says there's only two questions in business. The first one is, what's your business? The second one is, how's business? Try to stay focused. So, business of the church. Making disciples. Everything needs to be seen through the lens. You're doing this. I'm preaching to the choir, but it's worth hearing it again from the word. Everything's about focusing on making disciples. But again, we can get off the mark by thinking that's about doing too much and, and, and not as so much about loving, that we, we want transformed hearts. And again, you can see that idea working out. You, could, you guys have a lovely building here, but sometimes when a church is figuring out how to have a fundraising campaign, we can sort of make the goal be to produce donors, and we can use some methods and, and motivate, and some of them good, maybe some of them step across the line. We can get people to give to that campaign if we follow what we're told to do. We can make donors. Again, there's nothing wrong with being wise about a building campaign. I'm not negative on those, but if we stay focused on, make, on, on heart-transformed disciples... Hearts that love Christ, and because we love Christ, we're grateful for his mercy. And because we're grateful for his mercy, we grow to love our neighbor as ourself. Then, when we're heart-driven as disciples of Christ, we'll give to financial needs out of the overflow of our hearts. 
And I've heard your pastor say this very thing. The focus of worship was so much on the heart this weekend that was so refreshing. But it's still worth just remembering. It's not behavior modification. Another place we can kind of fall away from this focus is with our, in, in youth ministry, for example, we want to say, okay, with our teens, we don't want you to get involved in underage drinking. We don't want you involved with drugs. We don't want you involved with premarital sex. We certainly need to proclaim God's standards. But as we do that, what, what, a, what a better way to just help our kids love Christ more, just to see him more clearly and to love him better. Uh, and then out of love for Christ, to want to offer their bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And then our teenagers will make their choices about what they'll do out of the love of Christ. So staying focused on that heart transformation is part of what it means to stay focused uh, on, on God's purpose for the church of making disciples. Now what about the process that he's ordained uh, for this? Uh, I... Uh, I grew up in an era when there was very great success with types of discipleship programs that were mentoring and multiplication. And I came into the pastorate thinking that I needed to disciple two elders for a couple of years, and then they needed to each disciple two elders for a couple of years, and so on and so forth. And I think I support that kind of, of those that have those kinds of gifts of mentoring. I support mentoring everywhere I can help it happen. In fact, I get those people to focus on mentoring. It's so productive. But... To say that that's the normative way that the church, uh, that Christ laid out, that Paul lays out in this text for disciples to be mentored is mistaken. If you think about that, think about the, the, the 12 apostles in the early days after Pentecost took place when I think it was 5,000 people came to faith in Christ and a couple days later a whole bunch more came to Christ. I did the math on that, and if mentoring multiplication were the model of discipleship, each one of the apostles would have been mentoring 500 men and their families. They wouldn't, you can't even, it's hard to keep 500 names straight. There's no way that you could get life-on-life discipleship taking. So let's look at what really is being said in this text, and we'll see that the mentoring model is a subset of the biblical principle, and that's why it works. And praise God for everyone that does that. Please don't hear me undermining it. Let's just be sure we don't go beyond Scripture in trying to lock in to say this is the methodology for making disciples. Let's dig into these words, speaking the truth in love. That's a formula. It is. It sounds formulaic because it is formulaic. But it's, it's principial. There are lots of ways that you apply that. So notice, though, that word speaking. Paul, in this text, does not choose reading. Reading books, Christian books, that's a great way to grow in Christ. I do that, you do that, but that's not what he says here. It's not listening. Now, I've just heard your pastor pray. I know you get great sermons here and listen to them and listen to them again with all the technology we have. But that's not what Paul says here in this text about how disciples are made. What about imitating older Christians? That's great. If we had role models, that's one of the reasons we struggle as men. We don't have enough role models. Paul said, imitate me as I follow Christ. That's the biblical principle. That's not what he says here. Uh, Learning. The word of God transforms us. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Taking in scripture. Absolutely, that's a part of growing up in Christ. That's not what Paul says here. Paul uses the word speaking. And that is loaded with information for us about how discipleship happens. Everybody needs to have some connecting point in the body that's different from this. Because right here, one of us is speaking. 
everybody has to have some place that's small enough, a small group, a house church. You think of Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, to, to prayer, uh, that, that, that small group connection. What Paul's saying is everyone's got to have a place where he's speaking, where the group is small enough that he's verbalizing. He's using his mouth. He's declaring things. What's the topic of the conversation? Well, it's truth. And in context, if we look back at verse 14, we see, and this is where verse 15 we're looking at, the verse right before it, we can see that the, the truth that's in mind is sound teaching. Because in 14 it says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love. So it's, it's not just being honest, it is that, but it's, it's really in context being, uh, sp- talking about the word of God. In fact, when you put the lens of discipleship over this, it makes perfect sense. What's in view here, the word truth is a word that means um, not hidden. And so what is in view here is that disciples are those who apply scripture honestly to their everyday lives. The truth is an honest truth, and, and the disciples are talking honestly about how that is applying to their lives. There's a measure of vulnerability in, in, that's part of this word. Uh, so, again, if, if, you're, my, if you're my disciples, uh, keep my commandments. That's what Jesus said. So, the topic of conversation is applying the word of God in our everyday lives. And that's, of course, what Jesus and his 12 did as they walked the dusty roads of Palestine together because that's the way they, they traveled. And then finally, in love, speaking the truth in love, which describes a commitment to another member of the body of Christ. That's a big part of a small group, a, a connection, a couple brothers meeting as Jonathan and David brothers. This commitment is, is indispensable for the body building each other up. That there's that commitment, that willingness to listen to that brother's struggles like was happening in our small groups last night. Uh, in the, in that happens so well on a weekend. It happens with, with small groups, encouraging one another, celebrating each other's victories, uh, challenging each other's, meeting each other's practical needs because we hear what those needs are and we can, we can help meet them because we're in touch with other members of the body. We know what's going on, encouraging them. We know when they're down because there's one connecting point in a believer's life where he's speaking. There's one person that's hearing what's going on in his spiritual life because the structure of the church allows that and encourages that and he has pursued that because of this principle. Some place to connect. And it's in this kind of speak the truth in love connection that those one another commands make so much sense in in the new testament encourage one another uh, honor one another above yourselves stir one another up to love and good deeds Um, i mean that's a that word sort of means it has a little pointed aspect to it and that's that's kind of the idea of, of challenging each other admonishing each other but that 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 suggests, I mean, there's a corporate level for church discipline, but it suggests in context that that relationship with a brother that's close enough that he's asked you, you know, to, you know, to, to hold him accountable. When I travel in a case like this, I have a brother that, that I say, I want you to hold me accountable, that I don't look at something, you know, that I shouldn't look at. And I remember uh, one time coming, flying back from an event like this, and, you know, I, uh, I was tired, I was empty inside, 
and I walk into the airport. I've got a very long layover. I go into the, the uh, bookstore, and across the walls, kind of beaming out to me is a sign that says erotica. All right, and so I'm justifying, well, I'm married. I'm going to have some time with my wife, you know, and I'm rationalizing. I take a step in that direction. I'm such a godly example for you guys. What can I say? And the thought goes into my head, you know, if you look at that, you're going to have to tell Mark, because I asked Mark to ask me. And uh, then I take another step, and I go, well, I could just lie to Mark. You have a, you're probably much better than I am. You're probably much more virtuous than I am. But then I took another step. And when I took that step, step, an idea flashed in my mind that was a light bulb. Because the thought was, I don't want to lie to Mark. And that taught me some things about accountability, that it's a real relationship. It's, it's speaking the truth in love. It's a bond of commitment. It's a trust level that has grown. It's not just superficial accountability. There's a place for juridical in the church accountability, but I'm talking about connection in the body, a, a real enough friendship that I want to ask him to hold me accountable, and I, I don't like telling him the truth if I were to mess up, and by the way, I didn't look at it, but and we all need that extra help of accountability in our lives. But... Uh, but just having that, that brother who, who is willing to hold me accountable is what's in view here. Those one another commands, admonishing one another, confess your sins to one another. So that's the, that's the, the process. Speak the truth in love. And then the last thought is the parts. And, I, and just because Paul emphasizes it in the text, I want to end there. Uh, We've seen that the parts of the leaders and then the everyday saints in verse 16, he's just really focusing on everybody. But notice how many times he stresses every single member being connected from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So God's methodology for making disciples is every single believer in a small enough connection where he can speak. And the topic of the discussion is how he's doing with the truth that's changing his life, how he's doing in being a disciple of Christ. And as he does that, the bond that is built, the bond of love is koinonia, the sharing of life. Now, there's no one prescriptive program where that happens. You have lots of small groups here. That's a great format for it. You can have, as I mentioned, Jonathan and David relationships or a couple guys that can't fit into the go on the weekend or can't fit into some of the avenues for men connecting or women connecting, can, can just be intentional about having lunch at work or having breakfast with each other on the way to work. Uh, uh, some of the things I help pastors with is I encourage them in today's world where we have uh, where we have cell phones and virtually free long distance, connecting with an old seminary buddy who's a safe brother that you can really pour out your heart with. Maybe, a, you know, just have an appointment for every Thursday morning. I talk to this brother on the phone. Uh, it can take uh, the form. I noticed you have discipleship groups for your teenagers, and that's at McLean Press where my youngest was. They had, they were, you know, they were big enough to have enough uh, kids in his age group for the boys to get together, six or seven of them with a leader, and they chose when they were going to meet, and they happened to meet after church every other week uh, for lunch, and they kind of went through books and did different things. Uh, there's no one-size-fits-all. Just share one example of an 
an elderly fellow that I talked with and challenged about being connected, and he said, well, I can't do that because my, my wife has Alzheimer's, and I'm, I'm the primary caregiver, and I just can't leave her alone. And I said, well, just ask God to provide a way some way. And uh, I came back to see him uh, about three months later, and he came bounding up to me, and he said, you'll never guess what happened. And I said, well, tell me. He said, well, um, I started praying about it, and I thought about this friend that I had been in a Bible study with, and I t- called him up, and I said, hey, can I give you a call every once in a while just to talk about life, because I'm, I'm really, you know, at home, don't have any way to get out, and this brother said, sure, and we had this hour-long conversation, and then we started calling each other, and I talked to him almost every day now. Thank you so much for helping me see that God doesn't want anybody who's a follower of Christ, uh, you know, fighting his spiritual battles alone. I believe in the 21st century, the stakes are too high, the battle's too fierce, the enemy is too wily, the attacks are too frequent, the cost of defeat is too severe for any man, any woman, any teenager to fight his spiritual battles alone. What about you? Life's busy. Life's full of responsibilities. Is it time to take some steps if you don't have that kind of brotherhood, that kind of sisterhood in your life? Do you have somebody that's fighting beside you in your spiritual battles? Do you have someone who even knows what your spiritual battles are? Please, don't fight alone. That's not the design. Let me close with these words from Stu Weber, who wrote a book entitled Locking Arms. He says, together, it's one of the most powerful words in the English language. And geese know how to use it to full advantage. They seem to know instinctively that life is a team sport. Wildlife biologists tell us that a a flock of geese, by flying in a V formation, actually adds at least 71% more flying range than if each bird were flying on its own. As each bird flaps its wings, it actually creates an updraft for the bird immediately following it. Left to itself, the lone goose experiences a drag and a resistance that causes it to long for the flock. When the lead bird in the formation tires, it simply rotates back in the wing and another flies the point. Draft horses, he continues, experience a similar, if earthbound, dynamic. Draft horses were made for pulling. Some years ago at a Midwestern county fair, the champion animal pulled a sled weight of 4,500 pounds. The second place animal dragged 4,000 pounds. Then someone proposed harnessing the two big fellows together to see what they could do as a team. 4,500, 4,000. Together, they pulled 1,200 pounds. So let me ask you the obvious. If our feathered friends know it and the four-footed beasts experience it, why should we be so slow to learn it? Together is better, especially when hardship presses in and there is a tough pull ahead. Would you bow with me for prayer? Father, I know it's a lot easier to stand up here and talk about how much we need a brother or sister in our lives than it is to fight through the busyness of our routines and our demands and all that is expected of us. I realize, Lord, that sometimes talking to the most mature, committed believers, um, I'm talking to those that are, are trying so hard to fulfill responsibilities that they may see a brother or a sister as sort of a luxury. You know, I'd love to have a golf buddy I could get, get away with every once in a while, but, but 
guys and, and women are so busy trying to fulfill their responsibilities. But Lord, we, we even sang about it today. We know it's true that we're dependent upon your grace to live the life that you've called us to. And one of the ways that you've provided for us, one of the avenues for your grace is connection to other brothers and sisters. You never intended us to be able to follow you on our own. The, the commitment to you, Lord, has always been both vertically to you and horizontally to the covenant community. And so, Lord, help us with this. Help us have the wisdom to sort out how we could forge the kind of brotherhood or sisterhood connections that we could give another one strength. We could live out these commands maybe a little more than we are now, but also find the strength, the grace that we need. And we pray in your name, Lord, that you might be pleased to live in us. Amen.